Hello and welcome to the Transit Matters Podcast. Transit Matters advocates for fast, frequent, reliable, and effective public transit in and around Boston. I'm Jeremy Mendelson. I'm a geographer, transit service planner, and a longtime Boston transportation advocate. I co-founded Transit Matters because I care deeply about how transportation networks impact our lives and communities. Uh, and I'm Mark Ibunia. I'm the curator of our blog and social media feeds. By day, I'm an IT systems administrator, and by night, I'm the Leslie Nope of transit, geeking out over meeting celebrities in transport and getting knee-deep in advocacy and apparently also on Reddit and Twitter. So, And I'm go. Josh Fairchild. I'm a board member here at Transit Matters. I work as a lawyer, but in my free time, I like to indulge my passion for improving communities through better development and infrastructure, specifically with regards to transit and transportation networks. We've also got Rich Parr in the room here today. Rich, will you introduce yourself? Yes, hi, I'm Rich Parr. I'm the research director for the Mass Inc. polling group, and I also do some transportation policy work for Mass Inc. And the reason I'm in the room is because we're recording this at Mass Inc., and I guess I'm sort of hosting. So. <laughs> yeah, and you probably recognize Rich from uh, some previous uh, podcasts that we've recorded. Yes, I've been on to talk about our polling for WBUR about the T and about the Olympics and how those two things kind of came together. Excellent. And uh, and our featured guest today, uh, we are joined by former Secretary of Transportation, James Aloisi, who currently writes a column for Commonwealth Magazine, among other things. Um, And I'll let you uh, flesh out the introduction. Um, I think I need no further introduction, so we should move on. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) One day I should be so fortunate. Thank you. (laughs) Oh, I don't know. That, that, That may be a blessing or a curse, depending on how you look at it. But I appreciate you having me. Thank you for having me. Let's have an interesting conversation. And let's get to it. And Jim uh, Jim joined us uh, a while back for uh, our beer in transit. I think it was our first beer in transit event. Our first successful one. We'll we'll put it that way. Our our first with a with a featured guest. Well, yeah. So, well, I appreciate. I just want the people who are listening to this to know that tonight there is no beer. Apparently, there's just (laughs) transit. So, there's a single bottle of beer in the fridge. There was a single bottle of beer. If the listeners hear any clattering, they'll know that it's been brought up. Well, if you want, if you guys want to uh, have us have beer in future podcasts, you can. uh, You should give us money, and we will have. Beer. Well, Very well, our listeners can have a beer while they're listening to while this podcast. Listening. All right. Okay. I think I will do that when I listen to it. <laughs> well, thank you for joining <laughs> us. That's a great really excited. We've got plenty to talk about with the recent transit news in Massachusetts. Uh, today, hopefully, we can really hone in on lessons that the former secretary uh, can offer from his experience of implementing transportation policy for the Commonwealth and uh, also his other many more years in addition as a close observer, analyst, and advisor. Um, I think a good place to start because we can jump off from themes and uh, and issues from the columns that you write um, would be the Fiscal and Management Control Board um, yeah. that has uh, that has now put in place uh, what two years past or two months past now I think seems like two years yeah <laughs> things have been moving in slow motion ever since the winter it's in so so you know this was a, a very frequent um, well a huge issue in the Commonwealth. Uh, and in the greater Boston area, and a recurring, you know, uh, a topic in your column that you addressed, and you were a strong uh, critic, I think, of a lot of the proposed legislation that came from the governor's office, um, but I think in a very fair way, uh, a strong critic of it. And some of the concerns that uh, that I continued to see uh, in your column, or that you raised in interviews that you had on Greater Boston, uh, places like that, seem to do with the uh, Pacheco Law Moratorium, or you know pushes to have that eliminated in some way, um, issues with whether uh, the board would have the ability to raise fares beyond uh, the current, what is it now, 5% every two years? Is that? Yes. Recommended, yeah, not required. Right, exactly, yeah, uh, up to 5%. Uh, and, uh, and, and perhaps uh, there was more, um, you were concerned about the, the push for 
reform before revenue or the rhetorical um, idea that that was what was happening. So, what are your thoughts to date? You know, are you still uh, have the same fears? Uh, have you have you seen things that are making you feel more optimistic? Well, I'm a pessimist by nature. Which is a good thing you learn in life because if you're a pessimist, you're really disappointed, right? So, because your expectations are low and anything above your, ex your low expectations is gravy. So, but let's talk about, so I, I don't have to tell anybody who's listening that we had a, a meltdown of the tea in the public transportation system earlier this year. And in some part, in some part that was caused by very unusual, we hope, uh, unprecedented winter conditions. Uh, but in other parts, it was caused because the T is simply not a resilient system. And it's not a resilient system for any number of reasons. Some of it is chronic underfunding. Some of it is management that could be significantly improved. Um, and so the combination of all those factors led to what we all experienced. In terms of the control board, my view on it, and by the way, I think that the final outcome I've generally supported. I, I, my view of it was we didn't need a separate bureaucracy to figure out how to solve what's wrong with the T. Um, and so what we got, thanks in large part to the state senate that did a really good job putting the brakes on what appeared to be a runaway train, no pun intended, or pun very much intended. <laughs> um, we got a hybrid, which is some people who are on the board and some people who are not. It just so happens that the guy who is the chair of the fiscal control board is a longtime, very close personal friend of mine. So um, it, I know him quite well. I know his abilities, and I know generally how he thinks. And so it was um, a very pleasant surprise for me to hear about his appointment and it made me think that I ought to give this control board a chance to do its job. And so I'm not unhappy that he's in, that it's in existence as a hybrid and I'm very happy that he's in charge of it. Um, so let's step, take another step back which is to say my concern overall about what the proposals were to fix the T were, were basically rooted in what seemed to me a recurrence of let's reform and let's not talk about revenue. Now the governor's special commission said, oh no, 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 we're moving away from reform without revenue. But in fact they haven't because there is no revenue and all we have is more reform. And I'm not against reform. I, in fact, when I was secretary, um, did a lot of reform. But I also wanted revenue. Didn't get what I wanted, and still there's no revenue. Uh, you can't solve the T's problems until you solve the T's chronic uh, inability to invest in itself and the chronic need for subsidy. It will always need some subsidy, but the T needs money to do very basic things. That's why the governor wisely has put about $83 million toward a winter revitalization program because it takes money to do those things. It's going to take more money than $83 million to solve what needs solving. But the fact that even this administration has agreed that it needs to put that kind of level of investment in the short term is an admission that, in fact, the kinds of progress that we need to see happen at the T won't take place without investment. Now, the work that's being done is 
that that kind of non-sexy, almost invisible work should be invisible. Right? Should be invisible. Yeah. That needs to happen, fixing power systems and that sort of thing. Um, but there's a lot to do, and eighty-three million dollars is scratching the surface at it. Right, and it and it doesn't even get close to the the visible changes that. Um, yeah, I mean, happen. look, it, yeah. it's when you're on the orange line, you could be in a third world nation very easily. You closed your eyes mm -hmm. and said, so t where, where are you? You would think, well, not the United States of America, not Boston. And, and it shouldn't have to be this way. Right. You know, uh, the, I, I think that one of the things I've been writing about and talking about is that we're, I believe that we're in a time of transition. In fact, we're not just at the beginning of that time. We're, we're, we're up to our necks in that time. And that is a transition from what I call an autocentric century, 20th century, to a technocentric era, which we are very much in, and where people are thinking very differently about all aspects of their lives, including mobility. And I think people, especially in, in cities, especially in this city, they are younger, they are more willing to take, to want, and more interested in wanting a vigorous multimodal mobility platform and people want a better transit system they also want better safer bicycle lanes they also want better safer streets to walk on and the paradigms are changing and they're changing in front of our very eyes but we're not keeping the public sector doesn't do a really good job keeping up with changing times we're always a little bit behind the times and that's not enough anymore so what I say to people is that we're expecting to grow jobs in the innovation sector. We put a lot of money and a lot of emphasis on the development of places like Kendall Square or the Seaport District or Longwood Medical. These are these three great innovation centers. And we're attracting, those, we're attracting people to those jobs. Those people can work in San Francisco or San Jose or Portland, Oregon. They don't, I mean, they're not staying here for the weather. So why are they staying here? And the answer to that has got to be quality of life. And a, a functioning transit system is an important part of that quality of life. Uh, a functioning transit system that even a uh, third world country <laughs> would be proud of. Because at this point, I mean, we're, we're seeing, uh, there was an article, I think it was on, on Voxer or The Atlantic recently, where uh, China is pouring billions of dollars of investment into the infrastructure that we should be building into places like Africa where you know we see infrastructure going into places like Addis Ababa and yeah. uh, and all that sort of stuff which is I also uh, on the on the flip side also making it look much more like China's vision of urbanism which is really just kind of a remix of what we wish we could have built so right. <laughs> well um, you, you mentioned um, the technocentric you know yeah. way that a lot of uh, people are thinking these days especially the types of people who are um, the the people we're trying to have live in Boston or encouraged to live in Boston um, that, that are very mobile um, and I think you also are alluding to technological disruption <laughs> and we see that very evidently in uh, the taxi um, industry um, with the medallion system and the, the regulation and Uber disrupting that and recently uh, Uberpool has just jumped in and I think Boston is the third or the fifth city in yeah. the US for Uberpool um, which is getting closer, I think it's it, in theory getting closer to an actual sharing economy, although I've, what I've heard from friends that have used it is that actually it's Uber drivers who are already Uber drivers but they're just picking up additional passengers as opposed to... <laughs> it's cramming more people. Right, yeah. <laughs> but um, but, but that was very much framed, I thought, in the media as a um, something that would draw away from or be in competition with transit. 
in a, in a way more so than Uber was. But then I also saw that there seems like the, the fares I was looking up were three to five times more than mm -hmm. a, a T-fare. So I'm wondering what you think about that as being, you know, if the public sector is behind on unchanging and keeping up with technocentric, you know, quality of life people are, are thinking of, what do, you, what do you think as far as Uberpool and uh, uh, Bridge and things like that? You seem to have had both positive and negative things to say about them in, in your column, specifically Bridge, before. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I think that we're, for the first time in history, that the public sector is facing credible private sector competition in the transit space. I've said that, I've written it. And I think it's only going to increase dramatically over time. And it's a real threat. It's a threat to what I think we need to have, which is an egalitarian public transportation system. And my fear is that what will happen over time if we don't do something about it is that the T will increasingly become the place where people are using it because they're using it out of necessity and not by choice. And the more that happens, the worse it's gonna be for the T. Right. Because the people who use it out of necessity candidly are the people who have no voice right. at Beacon Hill or any place else. Mm -hmm. And so they're never going to be able to advocate for the kind of investment that would be necessary to keep that system going. Um, so plus I think it it begins to fray the social fabric if you have a tale of two cities played out in your mobility system. We already have a tale of two cities being played out in our income inequality that's not just the problem in Boston but nationally. Housing. And housing. housing. And so why would we want that to seep also into our mobility system, which it is about to do? Bridge, Uberpool, any other options are offering what I would call a more premium cost and a more premium service. Um, and depending on if they have the ability to cherry pick their origins and destinations, to cherry pick their, their, yeah. their corridors in a way that the public system doesn't. So, you know, I happen to live in the South End, which is a fairly gentrified environment, but also kind of mixed from income purposes. And I stand at the bus stop, I've written about this, and I'm waiting for my Silver Line bus because I want it to take me close to Park Street so I can get on the Red Line and go to MIT uh, for a conference. This happened a few months ago. And as I'm waiting for my Silver Line 5 bus, the sign, the uh, variable message sign says, unhelpfully, bus delayed. doesn't say bus delayed will be arriving three minutes late. It just says bus delayed. And there's a whole bunch of people waiting for the bus. In the meantime, a bridge van shows up at the site. It opens the door. Guy's dressed up like he's a livery driver. It looks very nice. The bus looks very inviting. The shuttle bus looks very inviting. And a bunch of people who are dressed up a little bit like me that day in a tie and so jacket, they look around, they, they go on the bridge bus. And a whole bunch of other people who couldn't afford that option did not. I did not because I just didn't choose to do that. But mm -hmm. I could have chosen to do that. And that's when it dawned on me how dangerous this is, right? Because the team needs to figure out how to compete with that. I'm wondering these days whether, for example, the T shouldn't be thinking about some kind of, of shuttle service completely in addition to its bus service that does some interesting things to compete with the private sector. Right. Um, it really needs to think about adapting to and responding to the times. Right. And why shouldn't the T have a service that where, it's, where origin and destinations are crowdsourced? 
Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that the whole system should be that way because it would fall apart. But I'm saying why shouldn't the T as a business that wants to be as reasonably uh, ahead of the times and responsive on a service basis, why shouldn't it think about, hmm, maybe we need to have a couple of new uh, ways of moving people and they'll, they, they won't have fixed bus stops. They'll be a little bit more fluid. They'll me- will look, look a little bit more like bridge. Test it out. See how that works in places where you think people would be receptive to that. Hmm. Um, no reason why we can't innovate. We don't have to innovate by saying we're going to start a brand new service all in one big gulp. You can pilot program things. And so that's the kind of thing I'd like to see the T doing. Again, my fear is that if the approach to the T these days, and the reason why I was against the idea of a fiscal control board is it reminded me of, you know, green eye shade types, that people are only going to look at the bottom line and not think creatively about the future, not think creatively about trying new ways of moving people, Mm -hmm. and frankly not thinking about the social justice implications. When we talk about privatization, you mentioned Pacheco, Um, I'm not against smart privatization, but I'm against privatization that has uh, very little return on the major effort. So, for example, people say, well, let's let's think about late-night service. Maybe that should be privatized. I don't think it'll ever be privatized because I wonder how any private sector actor would figure out that it could make enough profit or margin Mm -hmm. off that service. But think about who uses who use right. that service, right? So I often say to people, think about late night service and think about the seaport district and think about the restaurants there. Now, there are some restaurants there I don't even go to because I, I don't want to spend that kind of money. <laughs> but um, people spend a lot of money. So there's the, I, in, my, in my mythical, half-stereotypical example, there are a couple of well-heeled types who just came out of work at Vertex or Fidelity or wherever and they're, they're spending a few bucks having some wine and a fancy dinner at Del Prisco's or wherever. And so they may want late night service. And that's perfectly fine. And they could afford a premium cost if that's what a private system would offer them. But there's the bartender. There's the chef. There's the person who's cleaning the floor of the restaurant. There's the people in the tower above who are cleaning the office when everyone's going home to the suburbs or to the South End to have their nice dinner. They need to get home too, and they're not going to be able to afford a premium cost. So how does that work? And I'm doubtful that it will work. And to segue from that into why I oppose, I have heard well-intentioned people say, well, well, here's what we'll do. We're going to raise fares. We're going to create these premium privatized services, but we'll means test the fare so that if you're, if you're poor or you're lower middle class, you won't pay as much. We'll have a stratified fare system. And it sounds really nice and it's well-intentioned to doing it in Seattle. And I say that's another recipe for creating a tale of two mobility systems and c- creating a non-egalitarian system. It's a dangerous way to proceed. We should all be in it together. Right. And if we're all in it together, it'll make the system stronger, not weaker. Well, so my concern, my, I guess my, I don't know if this is a, more of a challenge or a comment, but uh, I think we're already at that, that point where we're treating, policy-wise, we're treating transit like a welfare state. Um, and we need to justify every single dollar that goes into it. 
Um, and so then my question to you is, um, do, does, does transit need to adopt, uh, adapt to, to these new modes, or should it acknowledge that these systems exist and try to coexist with them in some way, rather than actually acknowledging that they need to be... Because I think on some level, yeah, they're, they're in competition, but you can't really compete with the mathematical, uh, uh, the mathematical reality that you can only... <laughs> mass transit, the most effective way to move people is in, you know, a large tube in the ground or whatever, a right. large vehicle that's that's moving hundreds of thousands of, not hundreds of thousands. Well, it sounds like maybe yeah. what you're getting to is, you know, yeah. it's almost like the, the saving grace of the T, at least for the present, may be that um, regardless of how many Ubers, Uber pools, bridges you have, yeah. congestion is so bad yeah. that the third world orange line still oh. moves more people better you know, you know, it's like when it runs. I yeah. know when when I lived in on on a corridor served by bridge. Yep. I tried it a few times uh, when I was a beta tester and got it for free. <laughs> but I tried it a few times and I thought, you know, actually along the corridor I'm taking to go downtown from Brookline. You know, the Green Line gets me there just as fast. <laughs> oh yeah, no. Look, I grew and, up. In, yeah. I grew up in East Boston. My parents are still there. They're 89, and they still live, they live in the second floor of the triple decker we grew up in. And I'm there a lot because they're my parents and they're 89. And um, sometimes I'll be there um, to help with something. And um, my mother will say to my father, why don't you drive him home? And, and I say, no, 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 I'm going to take, take the tea. And my mother says, no, 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 he'll drive you home. And I say, my, you don't understand. If he drives me home, he won't come back to East Boston for another two hours. Right, because if it's after three o'clock, and anyone tries to drive back <laughs> toward East Boston into the, the the Ted Williams Tunnel, you better have a good book on tape going because you'll yeah. be there for a long while. My father doesn't do book on tape, <laughs> so, so I mean, it's we have. Uh, if anyone hasn't noticed that I ninety and I ninety three in, in I ninety three in both directions. Mm -hmm are chronically congested to a failure point almost every day after mid-afternoon and what's so of course transit is a much better much more efficient way to move people right. and it is and anyone who knows the system knows that like me I won't I wouldn't dare drive back and forth to East Boston if I could avoid it but the system's already in congestion mode and we're not doing enough to think about improving the transit system and options to encourage modal shift. In fact, mm -hmm. what we're doing, if you think about what we're doing, it would be, and if you looked at it as a case study, if it were a fictional environment and you presented it to people in school and said, well, what do you think about this? Here's a city, it just invested way too much money probably, but enough money to get, it, to get this big dig working the system's now back to being congested. And guess what their big initiatives are? They're going to build a casino in the middle of this thing in Everett. And they've got no plan, no credible mobility plan to deal with the additional traffic that's going to be attracted to that casino that will lengthen the prime time congestion. Right? That's, that's what their vision is right now in this fictional place called you know, St. Bottles Town. <laughs> what would you think about? People would say, well, that can't be true. They wouldn't be thinking that way. But in fact, people are thinking that way. 
and and so I shake my head and I think, well, I don't know what we're I don't know what we're thinking, but whatever we're thinking, we need to think differently. And so we're talking about a bunch of things here, but we need to think about keeping up with the times, adapting to changing mobility preferences and paradigms. We also need to be thinking about the realities of the status quo, which clearly require more of an investment in transit and ways to relieve congestion because we're not going to expand highways anymore. Those days are long, long gone. And so we need to figure out how to move people around more efficiently and how to give them options that are credible options. Right. I think you hit on two interesting issues there. And, you know, one being that, um, the, you know, we have this serious congestion that is forcing people onto transit, but at the same time, a lot of our transit service is vulnerable to that congestion. I was talking to buses. someone today who, uh, who mm -hmm. runs the, the TMA over in Charles River. You mm -hmm. know him well. Yes. <laughs> and um, he was he observed that the commuter rail heels you know, stop at Yaki on the Worcester line, and then it, he says it takes maybe 25 minutes to get from there to get someone to the next point where they could catch a, a red line train to get over to Kendall. And so they were thinking about should they have a shuttle between uh, uh, Yaki station and Kendall mm. and I said why doesn't Keolis pay for that I mean it's like oh he said this is an interesting idea I mean think about the just a little bit of creativity for God's sake if you're the commuter rail operator and you want to show that you've got some skin in the game and you actually get the idea of mobility in the urban environment and you could give your Worcester commuters a service by saying we're not going to ask you to wait that extra half hour. We're going to get you, if you get to Yaki, I'm gonna, I'm, we're going to pay for a shuttle. It's going to get you straight into the innovation district. 70, 100 new people might say, shoot, I'm not driving. Yeah. I'm mm -hmm. taking commuter rail because now someone got me the last mile in a very efficient way. We don't think, we're not thinking enough about using different modes and connecting things. We, we, we put Keolis and commuter rail in its own little... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, silo. Silo, yeah. thank you. Yeah. And everything, these things don't need to be siloed. Government ran in silos in the 20th century because that's what it did. Th again, in a technocentric era where everything's interconnected, we need to be breaking down those silos and figuring out how to make things work in new ways, right? And just I think you just segued perfectly into my other question, which is, what, you know, we talked about the, the everybody focusing on the bottom line, um, you know, but when we, you know, we don't get the revenue, um, but we know that, and for, you know, as an example of the T having problems, you know, with with uh, you know maybe warranting reform, um, you know, of this lack of vision and and other things. Um, what is there like a? I don't even. I mean, this might take five hours to talk about. But I mean, what is solvable at the T? Like, what is wrong? Or what what kind of reform could we do at the T that would, in your perspective, solvable solve things? Reform? Well, you I mean you know, clearly the T needs to have really strong management. I mean, I think with Frank there now as the acting director, he's a really strong manager. He's a good guy. Whether he'll want the job or get the job, I'm not sure what the politics of it is. But you need to have really strong management. You need to, the procurement system needs to be rethought. And it's not necessarily the T that needs to do the rethinking. It's the state legislature. I think I would, all of my experience tells me that a statute that requires anything to be procured in a low bid environment is anachronistic and is not helpful, right? Those low bid statutes were enacted in response to 
legitimate concerns about corruption back in the last century, and that was the way people dealt with it. And okay, so it took a lot of discretion away from people, and so it put the lid on one element of public corruption. In the meantime, it's not keeping pace with the times, it's, it, but it, and it's allowing a lot of seepage. I mean, a lot of low-bid contractors can't do the job as well. Your low-bid contractor locomotives for commuter rail, and they, they all show up defective. So how many times does one have to see that the system doesn't work? So I would move to a completely best value system and give some discretion back to informed decision makers who will have a lot of public scrutiny. So I don't really think that the prospect of corruption is present. I mean, humans are fallible individuals and some of them are, are bad fallible people and so you always have to keep an eye out for people, public or private sector. But I wouldn't let the specter of corruption prevent you from moving to a best value system. So you could do that. Uh, you can improve management that way. You could, you could set very clear performance metrics, I mean very strong performance metrics, and demand that they be achieved and hold people accountable. I mean those are the kinds of things that you do. What I don't think you do is create additional layers of bureaucracy and sort of misunderstood lines of communication and management. I'm not saying they're doing that, but I was again concerned that adding more and just by adding more people, you're not solving anything. You need to have something that's clear lines, clear lines of communication and direction. Creativity and risk and innovation are rewarded. I mean, I don't know if it's an apocryphal story, but they used to, I used to hear that Google would give people the worst award of the the worst idea of the week award, not as a joke, but as a way to encourage people to come up with ideas. And mm -hmm. this is true in the private sector as much as it's true in the public sector, but it's especially true in the public sector. People will not innovate because the very idea of innovation implies taking risk, and the very idea of taking risk implies failure, and nobody wants to fail. And you will not take risk if you don't think that your boss has your back. Especially in the public sector, there's not a lot of incentive for risk. No incentive. So someone has to change that. And someone has to say, look, we're going to allow you within reason to take risk and to innovate because we need you to do that in order to, for us to be competitive, to have a product that people will want to use more, right? That's, and so these things to me are sort of self-evident, but they're not easy to do. Chris, Chris Dempsey was our guest at the recent uh, Bureau and Transit yes. last month, and, and he spoke to how he came on board at the T, um, not because he had you know, a career he was planning in, in, in transit or transportation, Good. but because after you know, he was on uh, Governor Patrick's election you know, campaign, that he said, hey, I'd like to, that's where I'd like to go if I can get a job here. And he helped bring about releasing the data to allow all these apps that have been created that have made, I, I think have been a huge breakthrough um, for people who would, probably wouldn't even consider using a bus otherwise, you know, things like that. But he was sort of, you know, somebody who came from the outside, came in and had to cut through all kinds of red oh, yeah. tape and turn the plan that they had had for that data completely in reverse because they were going to do the countdown clocks first mm -hmm. and then later think about releasing the data. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the result was we got the data on our phones years in advance. We're yeah. still waiting on the countdown clocks at the stations. And so he, they just wouldn't, they weren't considering that, and he had to push against all kinds of walls to make that happen. It makes me scared about, you know, who is inside 
being well, it, like it, that. Uh, it all, it, yeah, I mean, that's so we did that actually when I was secretary. I showed up as secretary. He was already there. I had no idea who he was. I <laughs> uh, looked like young Abe Lincoln, you know. And <laughs> okay. somebody said to me, well, you know, he's like a nerd and a geek and knows all about this technology stuff. And I'm not a technologist, so, you know, I didn't know what to make of Chris or do with him. And he and a colleague of his, Josh Robin, um, came to me and said, "We got here's this plan, and we're going to put the data out. And, we're gonna, and I'm thinking, we're going to put the data out, all right. And they said, we're going to do it for free. And this is kind of a big deal because no one's doing that. And in New York, they're thinking of charging people. So I'm sitting there thinking, I'm getting criticized as secretary for every time I burp. And so who's going to criticize me for putting out the data for free? Someone at the Herald or some yeah. imbecile is going to say, um, not that those two things are mutually exclusive, but, <laughs> uh, is going to say, uh, well, wait a second, that's a public asset, and you should be, you know, this is why the T doesn't have any revenue, because you're giving it away. But Chris and Josh persuaded me. They're like, this is going to, you know, and I, and I said, okay, fine. You know, and I candidly admit, I had no idea whether they were right or wrong, but I was willing to give, watch their back. This is my point. I was willing to let them innovate and take risk, and I said, I'll do, we'll do it. I'm, and I'm the guy who's making the decision, so uh, I'll watch your back. And sure enough, I think it was like two weeks later, I kid you not, these guys come into my office and they're like, look at this, and there was an app. You know, I'm thinking, holy shit. Holy moly! <laughs> and um, yeah, so, so there are these guys in basements in Kendall Square writing these apps, right? And it clearly, the private sector was then able to innovate, or just plain old people, entrepreneurs, based on what the government did. And we're still not even close. I mean, my fantasy that should be a reality today is that people should be able to sign up for a service where. Every morning I get a prompt that tells me my preferred commute for that day, what the actual real time was on average for the prior, say, three days by different mode, by different mode. So, it make, so all of a sudden I'm an informed person, commuter, and I can make a decision, gee, I'll never drive that route at that rate, but maybe I'll take the bus or commuter rail or maybe I'll stay home and telecommute, right? That's what, that, the, the data's out there. Yeah. We're just not doing that. And if we, what we, there's a lot of talk about modal shift. How do you encourage, you encourage modal shift in part by informing people in advance. It does you no good when you're in the, on I-93 and you see a sign that says 12 miles, 30 minutes. I shouldn't say it does you no good. It does you limited good. You can then call the person you're going to meet and say, I'm running late. Fine. Hopefully on a hands-free basis. Right? That's about all you can do. But you couldn't go back in time and change your... Right. But choice, if, you so. knew that, if you knew that morning that the time that you wanted to travel, typically the past three days, the average real time was X, you might have made a different decision about your time, your route, or your mode. And that's real empowerment. That, get, that creates modal shift. That decongests highways. That gets people to get a taste of a different mode, and maybe they'll like it. So that, that could be done tomorrow, right. but no one's doing it. And now, the private sector may not want it. There's no, 
the one thing you learn about apps that I did learn is that th unless you're doing Angry Birds or something, there's very little profit margin in it. So the, there's not a lot of reason for the private sector or entrepreneurs to do something that's a little bit complicated maybe or data heavy and to manage that with algorithms that you need to do because there's no, there's no margin in it. So I'm, I'm thinking the public sector really needs to figure out how to do that. It has the data. It doesn't have to pay for the data. Right. It may need to have some way to pay for the use of someone's algorithm. But think about even work zones. We don't have anything like a, sm a smart work zone in the 21st century. So say there's going to be construction between point A and point B on the turnpike this summer. I should be able to sign up for a web to a website before the construction starts and say, every morning I want to know that work zone Again, real time in the past three days, I'm traveling between 9 a.m. and 10 a.m. And it tells me in advance, not when I'm in the thing, it's too late. And then I can decide, I'm going to stay home and telecommute. I'm going to take commuter rail that day because I can do that if I'm on the turnpike corridor. <laughs> I could take the green line. I could. That This stuff should be happening yesterday. Well, in a way it is. Uh, there, there, uh, Google does provide a platform for uh, safe agencies like MassDOT to be able to plug in their information to apps like Waze, but yeah, you're you know you're right. Uh, usually, people don't will open up their their app to check traffic until they're either already in their car. But it's or real time. Yeah, in real time. I'm, I'm yeah. talking about retrospective real time information. I yeah. get frustrated with I can't the night before if I'm going someplace new and I want to compare. Mm -hmm. You know, should I take an Uber? Should I take transit? Should I ride my bike? Should I drive? And I can't get the information on the drive tomorrow. I can only get it tomorrow morning when I wake up. Right. You know, because cause Google gives you the information real time. Right. Yeah, that's so what Jim is saying. Yeah. You, have, yeah. you can use history past this project. To project. In this case, you right. Yeah. Figure it out. I think yeah. the real power of real time is in retrospective real time, mm -hmm. not in real, real time. Right. Yeah. And I think it's really, really useful, really important for transit and, you know, trying to come up with better ways to do that. Right. Because one of the things that I was in charge of at the T was um, working on using schedule data. To, in travel time data and figuring out, okay, well, the bus the bus is scheduled to take 25 minutes between, you know, um, I don't know, um, Central and uh, Waltham. Or, no, it could be more than that. It's like an hour, whatever it is. But, but, you know, it's supposed to take X long, and actually yesterday it took 2X. And so, you know, and, and they, but that takes a long time. It's like six-month process for them to do this. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, it would be interesting to see if there are ways that, bus services can adjust mm -hmm. on an almost real-time basis. Yeah. The answer is with, the, with you want to talk about another thing that T could do a better job at, it's dispatching mm -hmm. and monitoring the bus during its route. So with a better system of dispatching, you cannot tell me, I do not believe that all of the bus, bus bunching that occurs, particularly on the Silver Line, and it can be notorious for, but I have seen four you know, three SL5s and an SL4 bunched together more than is comfortable. Um, that That isn't the result of bad dispatching and bad monitoring because those buses are all monitored on screens in the high street uh, operations center. And we're not doing it, we just, we are completely failing at getting those buses to move in, in, in you know, head with headways that are actually reasonable and, and useful to people, right? right? Well, so um, a small update on that, actually. The T, uh, 
some folks from the T, including Dominic Trebone, and I think they're the contractor that they're working on, um, yeah, are actually, yeah, I, IBI was it? Yeah. yeah. So they're working on software that does exactly this. Right now it's, mm -hmm. it's restricted to um, to the heavy rail, but the vision is to be able to extend this custom-built software because they can't afford one of those more uh, fully automated systems that are quote-unquote off the market. Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're basically having to build the system from scratch and uh, it'll be able to uh, take some of that, take that real-time data and, and crunch those numbers so that uh, predictively, it can see, uh, it can show dispatchers, mm -hmm. train dispatchers and bus dispatchers, uh, that there are hot spots forming. Because I think they had mentioned that there were two people who monitor all thousand, one thousand buses during four. during four four people. Sorry, four people. <laughs> I feel like it halves every single time I repeat it. But um, eventually, it'll be down to like half a person is dedicated to doing uh, doing that. So yeah, it's four people who watch all one thousand buses um, at the operations bus operations control center um, and so does that include the silver line or uh, I don't know if they they consider it a bus operations I mean I think so yeah, yeah it's a bus okay. it happens so, to be a bus it's not bus rapid transit it's right. a bus uh, <laughs> so. which is another subject but you know the other thing yeah. that we need to do and this is something the city needs to be involved in not just Boston but Cambridge and others mm -hmm. is we need to begin to to deploy sensoring systems yep. that, are, that have traffic priority signals mm -hmm. Because if you had that, that's another that's another tool in the toolkit to make sure the bus headways are actually something that makes sense for people. Yeah. Right? And I guess uh, I wanted to loop back to the the concern about risk. So uh, I'd, I'd say releasing data at this point. I mean, now that we're over that hump of of um, releasing data and the 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 T didn't explode from people hacking the data and you know automatically. I don't know, doing some crazy things. Only good things yeah. happened, right? <laughs> exactly. I mean, I was I showed up in Portland, Oregon at a conference, and people were thanking me for doing it. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I, so, you know. before, I, uh, before I worked here at Mass Inc., I worked at a better city, and my first week on the job was the week of the RPA conference in okay. New York in 2010. And I drove, I drove down to it. Um, instead of taking transit. <laughs> it was a little impromptu. I was like, hey, Rick, can I go to this thing? And he said, sure. Um, but that's where I met Chris Dempsey and Josh Robin because yeah. they were doing the road show. They had mm -hmm. already implemented this and they had their PowerPoints and they were, you know, I think they were on a panel with Janet Sadiq Khan and they were, they, mm -hmm. were, they got almost as much attention as, as, as she, she did, did because right. this was such a brilliant idea. Right. Well, so uh, speaking back on those those uh, those pilots, I helped. I actually worked with with uh, Josh Robin on implementing these uh, the service advisory pilot, mm -hmm. uh, which I think uh, was a little bit after your time um, at uh, at MassDOT, or I guess what ended up being MassDOT. So, uh, what about what are the the hurdles to doing pilots of like transit priority or lane takings or or road diets? I mean, None. I mean, the, the, the fact that we can't do it on D Street for the Silver Line 1 service is beyond me, to a point where I'm thinking I've got to figure out how to lead an effort to just make it happen. I mean, the, uh, anyone who takes the Silver Line to Logan knows that it's unnecessarily long and tortuous for, mm -hmm. for two reasons. One, there's no signal priority at D Street. Right. And two, the bus is not allowed to go down the state police ramp. It has to do this longer loop. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we should be better than that. And that's a perfect, D Street is a perfect number one place 
to test yeah. the efficacy, and I, we didn't even test the efficacy. We know that it's going to work. Yeah. Of the signal priority. I right? actually, I actually had a friend from Seattle. Uh, take the silver line and he complained about all of those aspects. I think coming from yeah. the airport back to South Station is even worse. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. You gotta do Silver Line Way and two weeks yeah. ago I had to go I had appointments that required me to go from the South End to Logan and then from Logan to JFK station to UMass. Mm -hmm. And I did this all on transit. Yeah, and three weeks later, I actually, you know, not joking, but I mean, it was it was quite an experience, mm -hmm. and you know, I'm okay with it because I know what I'm getting into. Right, right. Mm -hmm. But boy, if you didn't know what you were getting into, you mm -hmm. would you would wonder why why we present ourselves as a world class urban environment because <laughs> world class urban environments don't have transit systems that function that way. Mm -hmm. They don't have mobility systems. That function that way. Well, so one, sorry. Go ahead, go ahead. Oh, I was just saying. Well, I mean, one thing this this sort of brings up is, um, you know, some of the stuff that we talked about with uh, with regard to BRT, and uh, uh, you talk about mobility hubs uh, being sort of a, I mean, kind of one of the same, you know, or you know, working together. Um, is do you want to talk a little bit a little bit about your thoughts on the recent BRT report that came sure. from the Bar Foundation and. Um, what that what that means uh, and what BRT might look like over here? Yeah, I mean, I think the Bar Foundation did a real service by putting that out. I think that um, it's highly aspirational, and that's a good thing. I mean, when I was secretary, we proposed something called the 28X bus, which was the bus from Mattapan Station to to Dudley, and it would have been BRT. Um, people were not prepared for it. <coughs> Um, people didn't understand it. People didn't want to lose their ability to triple and double park on Sundays when they go to church. And because we were using, the idea was born out of the ability to use a significant amount of money made available through the federal stimulus program. So there wasn't a lot of lead time available to us to do the kind of small d democratic community participation process that you need to do to get people to buy in. Silly me, I thought people would accept a good idea <laughs> as a good idea, and sillier me, I thought the people in those districts would see that a hundred and, I think it was $45 million of investment in their neighborhoods was a good thing, not a bad thing. Either, no, now we move fast forward. I still think that's a corridor that should have bus rapid transit. From Mattapan Station, up Blue Hill Avenue to a point around Grove Hall where the street grid is no longer a grid and only would allow that bus then to become a bus with queue jumps and signal priority, but that's okay. Gets to Dudley, up Washington Street can be BRT again up until the point where you get to Herald Street and then it, uh, toward Tufts it's going to be a bus again. Uh, and then to South Station and it can be BRT from South Station to the Convention Center and then straight down the ramp into Logan. You could connect the city from north to south with BRT and it would be socially equitable because you'd be, think of all the communities that you would be serving yeah. from Mattapan to Dudley to the downtown crossing Essex Street to South Station right. to the convention center to the airport. So the, lowers, the low, lower cost than light rail, more achievable than light rail, mm -hmm proven that this thing works all over the world 
No reason not to do it. Will there be points along the way where it's not gold standard BIT? Yes, it will be because that's Boston. Right. But it won't be a lot, and it will, and the the benefits of it will be will so far outweigh any downsides yeah. that it will be a game changer for how people think about transit mobility and bus mobility. Right. I was just reading that report today because we're doing um, some work for the Bar Foundation on this very subject. They've asked us to survey in the Silver Line corridor and the in the Twenty Eight corridor about people's acceptance of this idea and. Everyone I've talked to with the T and MassDOT brings up 28X. It's, it's a specter that hangs over that entire BRT report is this, right. this, this fear that, you know, of putting something on people that they don't want or that people want light rail instead of a bus, which is this whole other issue. But, I mean, the travel time savings are significant, very yes. significant on, on, on the MADPAN yeah. uh, to Dudley stuff. And then actually, well, their, their travel time calculations for Dudley to downtown actually go all the way to Haymarket, but that's... I don't know how, how you do that, but <laughs> um, I would say, I mean, the, the other great thing about what Jim is proposing is this concept that we used to talk a lot about at ABC about the Urban Ring is the one-seat ride. You're not asking people to take one thing to another thing to switch to get onto another thing to get onto another thing. It's a single thing that takes you all the way up there, and that makes a big difference for people. I mean, it's in terms of comfort, in terms of their level of convenience. They know that all I need to do is get on this one thing and it's going to get me to where I need to be. I need, don't need to be thinking about transfers and do I have enough on my car and all those sorts of factors. So, you know, I think it's a great idea. I, I would caution uh, the the uh, <laughs> focus on the one-seat ride, considering the fact that, we, I mean, we do have a transit network. And so what we really are missing out on is this opportunity for a frequent network to, to take advantage of the existing services and the connectivity that we have. Uh, not to say that we shouldn't have a, tw that, not to say that we shouldn't have a BRT down uh, the Blue Hill Ave corridor. Uh, but one other thing about the BRT study, and I, what, I kn what we know that uh, Bar Foundation is working on is, is turning it into uh, a, an, an, a comprehensive community engagement process where people begin to understand the trade-offs of well if you want if you want this level of quality of transit then you need to have these trade-offs and and then what does that mean and what does it look like and you know really trying to take apart the specter of you know the tw the components that made 28x unsavory to people. So there were four. Well, so let's talk about yeah. the, my. So I, you're talking to someone who bears the scars of 28x, yes. right? <laughs> and so what I learned out of that process, not only that you can't do something quickly, like the, <laughs> the federal stimulus program was good, yeah. but it required you to move so quickly that you had no ability to have this kind right. of engagement or shovel ready or, or uh, yeah. shovel ready. So. Yeah. But there were four constituencies. Yeah. There were the there were the people who took the bus, which I took as the prime constituency. But they were not the people that the legislators were listening to. Mm -hmm. There was another constituency called the people who live along the corridor and on the streets that connect to the corridor, and they don't often take the bus. I found out. Mm -hmm. There was the business community and the Chambers of Commerce locally. And there were the Sunday drivers, the people who drive to church and other destinations and like to double and triple park. So you had four constituencies. The business constituency, the Mattapan Chamber, embraced the idea because they saw and they knew 
that if you put True BRT up and down Blue Hill Avenue, it would help bring new investment and revitalize their businesses. And so they were, they would improve public safety, it would improve mobility. They supported it. The people who took the bus supported it because they knew the 28th service was and still is not the best service. And so they supported it. Who didn't support it and who had the most voices politically, powerful voices politically? The people who went to church and double and triple parked and had the voice and the ear of the ministers who were politically powerful. And the people who generally didn't take the bus but lived adjacent and who were voters and who the legislators knew. Mm -hmm. They were concerned about disrupting the status quo and not improving mobility. And that's the lesson I learned. And whoever unlocks that corridor needs to understand that lesson, that the people who take the bus will want it, that the b local businesses will support it. But the people who have the... the ability to leverage political leadership, which are those last two constituencies, need to be brought to a place where they can understand it, embrace it, appreciate it, and support it. Yeah. That's the hard work that needs to be done. Right. I only know that having gone through the battle and realizing that there are, in fact were four completely separate groupings of interests that have very different points of view about that service. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask about about getting to revenue, but this I think is sort of similar. Maybe this is a piece of it. This is obviously a piece of getting to revenue. Is um, how do we move that conversation to you know away from this? You know, like don't change anything, or you know, I want my parking spot or whatever that that often comes up. Um, and obviously, understanding from the twenty eight X the the decades of mistrust that people yes. feel towards the the authorities, you know, whoever they may be. Um, so how do we move past, I mean, maybe those are two separate questions, and that's a little unfair. Um, but, you know, moving past that to, yeah. to get to revenue and better service. Sort of like how would you do it again, having learned those lessons? Well, you know, with the benefit of, if you had the benefit of time to, to, to poll and to bring people to a place where they have understanding, you would take the time it took. I mean, it took me... I, Anyone who's familiar with the Silver Line 4 service, mm -hmm. which is a very uncomplicated thing, it's additional, but we did that with federal stimulus money too. We bought, because I couldn't build phase three of the Silver Line, because we didn't have $2.1 billion right. hanging around, <laughs> we decided to offer people, and this is where I learned my own lesson, because I was, I always thought, well, it's trite to say I'm going to do more with less, but we actually did a lot more with a lot less, right? We had all this federal stimulus money, and uh, I was bemoaning one day my inability to figure out how to deal with this phase three silver line thing and the guy who I had hired to be deputy secretary for economic development, Peter O'Connor, said to me, I don't understand. And he's not a transportation person as much as an economic development person, right? He says, I don't understand why the bus can't take a right turn down Kendall Street. Get you to and I thought, well that's too obvious. <laughs> So I sat down with the planning folks, and they said, well, actually, it's not Kendall. You want the right turn on. You want it on Essex, but it's, it can be done. So with about a, with $1.7 million, that's what it cost, all in, we bought additional buses. We didn't take any buses off the SL5 service. We put this little, modest, nice waiting station at the corner of Atlantic Avenue across from South Station. And thanks to Mayor Menino, we, we restriped Essex Street, it's not enforced, unfortunately, these mm -hmm. days. We, we, 
it's a, it became a bus only lane. The mayor agreed to take out parking and parking meters. And all of a sudden, we had a service that's to this day is full every day, right? At all times, because people wanted to get to South Station. So you can do a lot more with less if you're creative and if you're willing to. You know, I say these. This 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 is the same message I give people who are adherent to light rail only, not BRT. It's like you know, sometimes you need to do more with less. Right. Because if you only want LRT, I can promise you, you will never get LRT. Mm-hmm. It's too expensive. It's not going to happen. We can build BRT that may that can mimic it, and I think you can. But let's not kid ourselves. Just like we couldn't kid ourselves about 2.1 billion dollars for a Phase Three tunnel. So let's figure out how to maximize what we've got. The SL4 service, modest though it is, is a very good example of how to do that. You just got to be creative and work around things. In terms of revenue, I want to say again, right now, we can raise, we can make available to the T almost $300 million annually without raising anybody's fair fee or tax. All we have to do is transfer the big so-called big dig and legacy debt from the T to the Commonwealth and transfer shift about 10 to 15 percent of highway dollars to transit for say the next five years mm-hmm. and all and that's all it takes and it seems to me such a path of least resistance yes of course some highway projects will be deferred I get that there's no such thing as raising revenue or making new money available that's completely painless if there was such a thing, it wouldn't be, we wouldn't be talking about it, right? But if you want it to be painless in the sense of not asking people to pay more, there are ways to do it. Why we don't do it is beyond me. Mm-hmm. So uh, I guess going kind of skirting that issue of revenue, maybe trying to keep it a little brief here because we are uh, running close to time. Um, so then what is, the, what is that challenge to actually making driving more, more painful? Like why why should we not do that? Um, if if it if by revenue or by policy or by lane takings or whatever. Well, I don't want to make. I don't. I'm not advocating making driving more painful. Mm-hmm. I drive too. Um, all I'm saying is that we're, we should be making other modes more attractive. Mm-hmm. That's 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 my message. So I'm not trying to punish the automobile driver. I'm trying to actually help the automobile driver by giving them options and decongesting their roads. How? Not by making the roads bigger, because that's not going to happen. That's like LRT. It's not going to happen. It's going to happen by mo- moving people to different modes and investing in those modes. Mm-hmm. So well, one way to move people is is price. You yes. talked about how you, mo- but do you not equate price with pain? No, I I, <laughs> I, I absolutely do equate price with pain, and I. But I'm I, I'm advocating shifting debt and highway dollars. I'm not advocating raising anybody's gas tax or fare or fee at this point. Okay, I guess I was jumping on to some yeah. other things that you've touched on in the past. Like VMT, you mean? Yeah, congestion pricing. Yeah. Oh, sure, but see, let, that's different. Now, if we, if, if we agree that, and I hope we can agree at this point, that the gas tax is a dinosaur, that it's mm-hmm. politically poisonous, and that it's foolhardy to, to go down that path any longer. Yeah, absolutely. Then, and if we also agree that we're living in a technocentric era, then we should be looking at something like VM, VMT as, a, as the purest form of user fee. I believe that most people, when faced with a pure user fee, 
will accept it and embrace it because people, I think, will accept the idea that I am only paying for what I use. And I think they also accept the idea that if they're using something on a premium basis, like during congested hours, that they'll pay more. Just like people who want cable expect that they're going to pay a premium if they want to watch all these literally premium channels. Premium channels, <laughs> right? Yeah. So that's embedded in the culture. I think people yeah. would be accepting of that. I don't think they would see it as punishment. I think they would mm -hmm. see it as that's how the marketplace functions. Mm -hmm. What they don't like is a, you know, the days of the tolls when they're still paying a toll collector like, you know, Chubby Checkers on the radio. Right. Um, 1950s style. And they're handing over cash, right? But if, if it's all electronic um, and it's a pure, transparent, user fee-based system, mm -hmm. I really don't think people have strong objections to it. So do you think that'll overcome even the... Pol th there's also... Poland. Poland. <laughs> yeah. Well, because we've also yeah. seen yeah. polling. There's, there's, there's a huge east-west yeah. uh, polling, um, yeah. I guess third rail almost in Massachusetts, it seems like, when people are so upset coming from the western, like metro west, and further west from that, having to pay a toll, whereas people on 93 north and south don't have it's a free ride living. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they yeah, don't have to. Of course they don't they have more congestion on ninety three also. It's but a deeply contentious issue. So I mean we did some polling on revenue options back in 2012-2013, premised on the idea that something was going to happen, right? So when we asked these people these questions, it was sort of like the legislature is all talking about that um, that they're going to be raising some revenue for transportation. Which of these options would you, you know, entertain? Um, and we did actually ask people, sort of in the abstract, do you think that transportation um, should be paid for from the users of the system, or do you think it should be paid for kind of from the general fund? And there was a slight preference, I would say, for the user fee principle. Mm -hmm. But when, then you, when you then asked people, um, gave them a list of options and just said, pick your favorite, the top one had nothing to do with user fees. In fact, it was something like corporate taxes or something like that. <laughs> because at the end of the day, people would much rather have somebody else pay their fare, mm -hmm. their freight. They're not paying the corporate tax, but they are paying the gas tax. They are paying the subway fare. They are paying the vehicle registration fee, all the other various things that we looked at. VMT did not do very well. Um, you know, and it's and and I've seen other numbers that suggest that it continues to not not do very well. We did focus groups with this work as well, and some people even equated it. Or you know, first off, it's a it's a difficult technology to understand. Some people yes. think that you're so, putting a transponder so, on yeah, it's a, a car, and there's a privacy issue. Even apart from that, some people in the focus group said to us, "It feels like you're punishing me for 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 getting out there and being economically active." Even though that's kind of what the gas tax does now, mm. but it felt more visceral and, and immediate when you just say, oh, we're going to keep track of how mm. much you're driving and then you're going to get a bill at the end of the day or however we're going to do it. So there's definitely some hurdles to be overcome with VMT. But, but I will say that, again, this principle is held, I think, loosely by people. And when push comes to shove, they would much rather have somebody else pay for it for them. Right. And that means broad-based revenues, and that's another discussion, is the idea that we've been subsidizing transportation, roads, and transit from the from the general fund at the federal level, and doing it here at the state level now. The user fees are not paying the full freight, and sometimes I think when we focus so much on the user fees, we're sort of leading people to think that that's all that there is, and that's what, that's covering it, but in fact it's not. Maybe you mean in the gas tax, when you're saying? Yeah, yeah. 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 maybe it's we need to just phase. be honest with people and say that that's not 
and should full be freight. And to. if you want the economy to work well, we need to invest some money from other things into this, and let's have that conversation too. It's an education process. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that that's what pe people don't know what BMT is, and so right. the natural reaction is going to be skeptical. Yeah. But I think I think people can be educated. I think people do support investing in their infrastructure. And uh, I think if we're moving away from a gas tax that's unpopular in any event, um, and toward, I mean, we're not talking about charging people for driving down Main Street in Winchester, right? We're only talking about, I'm only talking about state highways and, and hopefully interstate system. So I think when people begin to realize what VMT means, it can be a very, very robust, reliable, source of revenue. And what I don't think people like, and what I object to, is trying to find transportation revenue from non-transportation sources. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're looking always to a sales tax, or some people want an income tax, or something. Right. And we have plenty of other needs in the Commonwealth that are education needs, and public safety needs, and healthcare right. needs, mm -hmm. that we don't need to be raiding those coffers when, trans when I believe transportation needs can be satisfied primarily through transportation sources. Right. Well, it's true. It's, a, it's, a un it's unique that you have these sources in transportation. You don't have them in other parts of state government that you can rely on. So there is a, an argument that you should be able to pay your full freight. Yeah. It, also makes, it also makes decisions around transportation um, more economically transparent, mm -hmm. which, which would lead people to making transportation choices, living choices, workplace choices, um, all those locations that they travel to based more on the economics of, that are actually involved in the transportation rather than when it comes out of general fund and doesn't, your transportation doesn't reflect the actual cost of that infrastructure. Before, I don't know how much time we have, I want to make a very quick pitch. Sure. Because I know at least two people in the room bicycled here, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I've been calling for two different things that I think in the recent week another terrible event happened in terms of bicycling. And I think, so I just want to make a pitch for two ideas that I've been floating for a while now that I'm hoping get traction, right? One is to have a local option allowing cities to impose a carbon assessment fee, carbon impact fee, not a tax, <laughs> on non-residential parking. Yep. And to require that the revenue associated with that be dedicated to transit bike impaired in that community. So if it's Boston, that money has to be used only, can't only be used for complete streets, for safer bike lanes, for better connections to transit, Cambridge, etc. It's a dedicated, potentially robust revenue stream that you could bond against if you're the city and leverage real money in a time when the feds are cutting back on what they call politely enhancements and the state is also in a position where it can't afford to pay for a lot of these things. We're looking for revenue sources, a local option carbon assessment, which basically charges the car for its impact. Right. Would go a long way to putting money toward the very things that we're talking about. Number one. Number two, requiring the what I call an SIR, or a safety impact review, just like an EIR, just like an environmental impact review, is required for transportation projects over a certain threshold. An SIR would be required. And what does an S-Safety Impact Review do, do? It requires that that project undergo a review literally for safety, meaning is it safe for pedestrians, is it safe for bicyclists, and if it isn't, let's make it safe mm -hmm. before 
it can pass the threshold of getting put out to bid. Right. If we can do it for environmental purposes, we can do it for safety purposes. Right. That would also go a long way for bicycle advocates and activists to and, and, and Walk Boston and others to have a real potent tool to be able to change bad planning and bad design and bad engineering or to get people to think differently right. about bike safety and pedestrian safety and access when they're doing projects. Right. So I, my, I'm convinced because time tells me, history tells me that this is true, that unless you bake that into the system, you will never get it right because engineers don't think that way. Yeah. And you can't keep your fingers crossed and hope, well, maybe Secretary Aloisi or Secretary Pollock will get it right. Well, get, keep having a fingers crossed approach to, to government working is not a good way to proceed. Mm-hmm. Bake, <laughs> baking environmental protections into the system yeah. has meant a great deal. Baking safety improvements into the system would make an equally great deal. So yeah. that's my pitch. It yeah, seems like now we're dependent on groups like Livable Streets or others to be yeah. able to, to, to notice a high-profile project and lobby uh, even, so we'll get, we'll get a preliminary plan and then they'll they'll go to community meetings and lobby for safety to be included for other modes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And Having you, to do you a simply project can't be at every single project. Yeah. Why don't you get the ball rolling if I can advocate for this? You know, there must be one or two legislators in the Boston and Cambridge area who could support a bill that would that would create an SIR. Yeah. I'd go up and testify for it. I mean, I think you I think people need to take the bull by the horns and not expect that government is is going to behave the way they want it to behave in this area mm-hmm. because the constituency isn't strong enough, frankly. And the people who actually do the implementation don't think about it that way. Right. So let's stop proceeding with our fingers crossed and let's start proceeding in a way that bakes something good into the system. Participatory government or something like that. Something like that. Um, Lastly, just a quick question. You mentioned, uh, I wasn't going to talk about this, but you mentioned uh, Secretary Pollack. I just want to see if you had any thoughts on um, on anything that she's done to date, um, any of her actions. Um, And do you think her, this sort of internal balancing act that's going on um, between the, the different people that she's reporting to and, you know, she was a transit advocate. Um, do you have any thoughts on some of her performance to date? Having been in those shoes uh, before, right? Yeah. I, so I've known Stephanie a long, long time, and I like her a great deal. I have very high regard for her. I, the last thing she needs from me is to have me <laughs> second-guessing <laughs> what she's doing. Um, but I, I really do have high regard for her. A, a, a quick funny story that has the virtue of being true. The three finalists for Secretary of Transportation in December 2006 for Deval Patrick were Joe Aiello, who's now the head of the Fiscal Control Board, Stephanie Pollack, and Jim Aloisi. And for different reasons, each of those people said no or or were not chosen by the governor. Hmm. And he picked someone else. So what a world do we live in? <laughs> Where you all end up <laughs> Where we all end up somehow, right? So but so she was certainly capable and qualified in two thousand six, even more so now by the virtue of time and experience. And I do think I I know many of the people that she's appointed uh, to her team, including people like Astrid Glenn and 
and um, Jamie Tesler and she's and Frank DiPaolo and um, it's a good team it's yeah. a strong team and they're people I would have appointed so um, I, I wish her well and I know that the job is thankless I was on a panel with her and I made the point of saying I, I know it's thankless and let me let me prove the point now by <laughs> yeah. speaking saying what's on my mind uh, what she will find when she leaves the job which I have found is that it's a great experience and uh, but there's nothing better than being a former secretary with the freedom to actually say what's on your mind that's <laughs> um, never been her problem it's never been her problem <laughs> yeah. um, but I think I think we're well served I, 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 by the way I don't think that the governor is anti-transit I, I like him personally. He was very, um, without getting into details, after he lost the election to Governor Patrick, I got to know him a little bit. He was very personally uh, generous with me uh, because um, the subject of the big dig had come up a lot during the campaign and my name was thrown about. And I have high regard for him as a person as well. And so um, I, I wish them nothing but the best and would like to be helpful and in my way right now of being helpful which may be counterintuitive if you're them is to just raise issues that I think need to be raised to enlighten people a little bit hopefully and get people motivated to think about issues that they're not thinking about maybe as if you're if you're in office trust me all you're thinking about is what tomorrow will bring because you never know it's just it's one thing after another and people need I hope to have others who can raise issues like are we thinking about the future are we adapting to change are we responding to clearly changing demographics and mobility preferences and paradigms are there creative things that we could be doing and, and innovating on what ideas are bubbling up there and so I think one or two good ideas can bubble up and be embraced and that's a good thing yeah well, uh, I know that being transport secretary was thankless, but we want to thank you, Mr. Aloisi, for your time here uh, and also for your, your service. Uh, so um, that said, I think we should probably wrap this up, right? Yes. Um, and we, so thank you so much for listening, and I uh, will um, post this. Uh, this show will be up uh, in, the, in the coming days. Uh, be sure to visit transitmatters.info for more news and information. You can subscribe. You can sign up to volunteer because we can't do this alone, people. Uh, we're all volunteers here. Um, follow and engage us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. Are we on Snapchat yet? Uh, okay? Nope. We've got a bunch of other places. We've got a bunch of other things involved <laughs> in the Hillary Clinton. I don't even know what yeah. that is. Oh, yeah. okay. Wherever Hillary goes. Wherever Hillary goes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you can email us feedback at transitmatters.info because we love hearing from you. Um, we have some very exciting things coming up, so stay tuned. And uh, if you want to follow me, uh, Jeremy Mendelson, I'm on Twitter at Critical Transit and uh, maybe even Transit Matters if I can figure out how to yeah. uh, post there. Well, you can also follow me on the main Transit Matters Twitter account, um, or you can argue with me on my personal Twitter account, uh, Digital Sci Guy. I'm more than happy to, to spar with people. And I tweet at Hatchback31. Uh, I, I also tweet, it's the only social media I do, <laughs> at Jim Aloisi. And I rarely block you unless you're really obnoxious. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't gotten blocked yet, I don't think. So. Uh, we'll put up links to your work uh, over there and uh, your work in Commonwealth and, uh, and where places where people can find you. Um, so thanks again. Just a quick update for listeners. Um, as like I said, stay tuned. Um, our Beer and Transit series will be taking a, a break in August. Uh, so we'll see you September 30th. We will have uh, Maryland transit advocate and author Benjamin Ross. And you can find out more about him 
uh, on Twitter at Ben Ross Transit. And uh, until then, stay tuned and uh, get in touch because transit matters. <laughs>